Welcome to Al and Frank Try to Be Serious, where Al Jackson and Frank Caliendo, which is me, try to be serious. And it's very difficult right now because I'm looking <laughs> at Al, who just came back into the screen um, wearing a hat, some like a trucker-type hat, some glasses, and uh, explain in a second. I'm going to tell people that coming up on this show, we're going to have our guest Chris Spangle who's been on the show uh, early on in our uh, podcasting endeavor, but we haven't had him on for a while. Looking forward to this. Al, tell me what this hat, what your whole look is all about first. And I guess people have to take a look on the web to see what it is. I just have to hear it for myself because we'll put a picture up. A picture will be on Instagram, Twitter, and everything else because I really am completely (laughs) confused as to what is happening well, with you well let me let me explain frank uh i think you're, you're gonna you're gonna like where i'm going with this uh i don't know if you in, in spangle i don't know if you have this in your family's history i haven't introduced house. spangle yet so don't get oh, okay. him, don't even talk to him yet he's not here he's just like a it's like having a picture of an ewok on, <laughs> uh, or or uh john lucas uh, <laughs> a young john lucas uh not john lucas um uh, why did I say John Lucas? He Steven? was a basketball player slash basketball coach. Uh, George Lucas. George. Oh, holy those are cow. very different men, Frank. Yeah, very, George, very John Lucas. Wow, John Lucas. <laughs> I got an entire basketball team caught in my throat. <laughs> All right, so explain the look because it's ridiculous. All right, Frank, you know how there's something we call Sunday Funday, right? No, <laughs> you don't know what Sunday Fun Day is, Frank. You older gentleman, <laughs> please tell me you know what Sunday Fun Day is. I really don't. It's fun. It's when uh, basically it's for adults that want to keep drinking. Uh, they invented something called brunch, so they call it Sunday Fun Day. So a lot of people in their late, the uh, mid to late twenties on through thirties or forties, they all get together, have brunch, and get drunk during the day. Well, I didn't want to do that, so with my kids, what we did was we did uh, Sunday's Crazy Hat Day. And so you just find a hat in the house and you put it on. And I think everybody can. Why not just wear a ridiculous hat on a Sunday? Why not? Yeah, but I ask you. Sunday fun day actually has it's kind of a rhymish type of thing. Yours is Sunday kooky hat day, which black people do not say kooky. No (laughs) black person's ever said kooky. It's it can be goofy or crazy. I'm going to go with crazy hat day. Okay, I, I there's nothing I can say to that. So, have you ever heard a black man say "kooky"? Never. Yes. No, you have. When? Just now. <laughs> <laughs> Zing! You didn't say it. It had to be in context. All right, let's get into our guest, Chris Spangle, head of the Libertarian Party for the Universe, <laughs> President, King Emperor. Um, now. Uh, before he does, I'm going to let him do a little bit of his own introduction because he had a funny story about this off air too. But um, we don't actually we don't talk a lot of actual politics on this show. That's not what this is about. So if people are listening and saying, "What are you doing talking politics?" It's not exactly that. It's just trying to get perspectives. And um, Chris, who uh, is part, I guess, of the Libertarian Party or identifies with it. Um, or maybe we'll find out he's had some spats with it um, because he's shaking his head right now. 
Um, but he's also tried to help me find some socialist guests and stuff like that uh, for us to be able to um, find and listen to all different perspectives so we can all learn. And that's the point. So Chris Bangle from the podcast We Are Libertarians is now with us. Chris, are you really the king of all unearthly libertarians in the George the slash John North. Lucas? I've declared myself so, and uh, I reserve the right to declare myself king of all alien libertarians that might show up later. Hey, hey, just like Dr. Dre called himself a doctor, is that how you is is it like along the same line of thinking? Exactly. And if I can get if I can get enough of you people to buy into it, then I get to be king of the world, right? Like that's how it works. And again, another person you resemble, Leonardo DiCaprio, king of the world. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, if I get stopped I on the street a... and asked if I'm Leo one more time, I just I'm not. I want to ask take. you guys quickly is this an, an indictment on our society that dr dre is the most famous doctor that we all know <laughs> there's a I might give you a little b- backlash to that and it's not going to help the doctor situation because dr phil yeah would be another Ooh, one oz that's a good uh, one dr pepper which is a <laughs> beverage <laughs> uh so i think but those th- of those those are three of the most famous doctors one of them a drink, another one a mogul, um, and uh, well, two of them moguls, I guess. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Chris, what? What? Why were you shaking your head in, during the intro? And I'm not, I'm not faking this questioning tone. I really, that I, I noticed some body language as I said that. What's uh, What's going on? Oh, I, I think I'm just awkward. But I, oh, I, <laughs> I, used to, I used to work for the Libertarian Party from 2008 to 2012 here in Indiana. And ever since then, it's just been kind of a slow leaving of that particular party. I, I, would, I definitely vote Libertarian for the most part. But I don't have anything to do with the party per se anymore. I host a Libertarian podcast. And I, I think when you are a political commentator, you inherently run into conflicts with the people that you cover. And uh, while I have good relationships with most libertarians, the party sometimes and I, the chairman and I sometimes have a, a, a back and forth. So, but I think that's just natural when you when you uh, share the good and the bad of of a particular political movement. So, and that's so. Yeah, I, at this point, I have no affiliation with the party. I'm not even a member, but I am a part of the libertarian movement and am a libertarian and vote for the majority of their party's candidates. So you have nothing to do Chris, with the party. You uh, don't always – well, you seem to vote with it more often than not. Mm-hmm. You have a podcast called We Are Libertarians, but you have there's a little bit of a scuffle between you and maybe some of the beliefs and some of the things people are doing. Uh, it's, it's a cantankerous movement, Frank. It's full of a lot of people who are – who are difficult, and me being the king, uh, it's, it's probably it's probably more me than them, to be honest. Well, it's funny because in like if you are a libertarian, and maybe you can give us a recap for libertarianism for everybody that's listening that might not have heard you the first time mm-hmm. or heard you at all with us. Uh, I, I could understand that because basically a lot of libertarianism is take care of yourself right. and worry about yourself most. 
and other things will fall in line because everybody else should be taking care of themselves as well. Yeah, it's it's very individualistic, and so it's hard to corral cats and and, and it's just like <laughs> it's like any other movement. I mean, the, the I would disagree with that. I would, I would say that we've done a good job. We can grab some cats if we want to. Yeah, it's so it's harder. You want a cat? I'll get you a cat. <laughs> harder than hurting cats. Um, but it's like any other movement. You know, the, the you look at the divisions in the Democratic Party right now, or when Romney was the nominee, certain people didn't like him. I mean, every Every group of people is always going to have their own issues. It's like the People's Judean Front in The Life of Brian. That's kind of the standard. Like, if you want to go to a libertarian meeting, watch that scene first, and that's kind of how it is. But um, as far as being a libertarian, I mean, really, you, you, you're pretty close. I mean, it is about taking care of the hundred people that you see in front of you and your personal interests, your family, your community, and... Uh, it's not stealing other people's stuff, not hitting other people, not you know f- f- defrauding people. It's sort of like what your parents taught you. It's the basic morality applied to government that we learned as kids. So, um, I, 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 what I try to do, I don't necessarily presume to actually speak for all libertarians, and I don't think they'd want that. And I don't think that that's a, a good way to handle things. I really have done my podcast over the la- last eight years to learn a lot of stuff. And so I'm always kind of questioning, trying to figure things out, trying to understand the world and explain it from a libertarian point of view. So, so I don't always have all the answers, but I, I just do the podcast as a way to kind of output that learning because I view libertarianism as a, as a constant and I'm the one that's kind of adapting myself to it uh, because it's a, well, it's a hardcore with, with ideology. That, I was going to say, with that being said, I, I just want to know where exactly the division uh, with you and the, and the higher ups uh, came in. More than that, do you think it's like kind of symbolic of all parties and really just all kind of movements in that once you unite for a common goal, you immediately find divisions within your own party and that causes further fractionalization? Totally, yeah. I think it's just anytime you have a group of people, there's going to be different uh, ways of doing things or different levels of some people are laissez-faire, some people are controlling some people have different strategies. I was just watching Ken Burns' Vietnam, and in episode nine, they show the soldiers through throwing their medals in protest, and that was very powerful and effective. And then you had all the crazies come in like three days later, burning buildings and cars, and and you know they have two different tactics, and they override each other. And it's sort of like that with every movement. I mean, uh, I I typically view the libertarian party as a political party it's about recruiting candidates and winning elections and there are a lot of people in the libertarian party who view it as a way to educate people about the basics of the philosophy and so those are just two different strategies it's not necessarily a a a difference of you know uh, it's not that i dislike people it's just that i think that the the organization should have one particular role and they think it should have another but i think that's pretty standard of any movement yeah, I mean, it's just it's, it seems like there must have been something for you to, to actively uh, disengage with this with this movement. To, to, if you're no longer a member, I would assume that was like a that was like a conscious effort to, to separate yourself. Well, I hate to say this uh, because I never like to discourage people who are involved in the Libertarian Party. But the real value of the Libertarian Party is running good candidates and influencing your opponents in debates and forums mm. and moving public policy. That's what 
Eugene Debs did with the Socialist Party 100 years ago. If you look at the Socialist Party platform of 1912, a lot of that stuff has happened through Democrats and their policy. And so that's the real value of the party. And so I just I don't find it to be a great for, for me personally. I don't find it to be a useful place for my time and money. I find my podcast okay. to be much more uh, of a better vehicle to convince people of these ideas than trying to organize candidates. I don't think it's a very effective organization. And so when it comes to my personal time, I mean, but if there's people out there in their county parties, it's like, go for it. But, you know, I was, tr I was a true believer at one time, and now I'm not as much of a true believer just because of the dysfunction of the national organization. And, and that kind of just has a top-down effect. With, with those thoughts, do you think a libertarian, the, the party itself, could ever be big enough and general enough to win a major election? Because I think that I just feel like that would be very difficult. One, yeah. from the marketing perspective of both the even <laughs> I laugh when I say the Republicans, not that I'm saying anything other than it seems like they don't market very well. <laughs> um, the 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 Democrats and the Republicans, they get all of the talk. Yeah. Like it's all free marketing constantly from news. It's just one versus the other. And nobody ever really seems to pay attention to libertarians. And I remember, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, uh Paul, um, not Rand Paul, Ron, uh, Ron Paul, um, Ron Paul had said to me on a talk show, uh, Hey, do you want to endorse me? I just got, cause he, we were just talking about politics a little bit, but He's like, you want to endorse me on television? I was like, well, no, I, I think I like a lot of what you're talking about, but I'm not going to uh, endorse you. Um, and he was like one of the most natural, normal people ever. It wasn't actually Ron Paul. It was one of his people who asked okay. me if, if I would. Uh, let me get that corrected. Um, because they said Joe Rogan had just uh, endorsed him or something like that. And they said, do you want to, too, on television? I was like, well, listen, I don't know enough to ever endorse somebody, but I, I do like some of the things you're saying and uh, I get them. Um, but at the same time, I'm not putting myself out there and doing that. So do you think the, the uh, Libertarian Party would ever have that ability? It seems like if people are all about, hey, take care of yourself and not anybody else, that's going to be really tough to get a lot of people on board, even though in a perfect world, it seems like, hey, hey, I, I love that idea because I always, Al and I always talk about basically there's two types of people the, in general to generalize. They're the people that are like, hey, I'll take care of myself. You take care of yourself. We never have to worry about each other. And then they're the people who are like, hey, let's just take care of each other. And then we never have to, never have to worry about ourselves. And both sets of people end up being hypocrites in some way. Uh, in the end, because it's impossible to stay that way the entire time. A person who's like, everybody take care of each other, uh, basically gets selfish at times. And somebody who says, I'll take care of myself, will take free stuff whenever they can get it too. Yeah, well, I think, I think we look at the government to solve solutions because we think it's going to be easier and we think that it's going to be effective. But in reality, it usually isn't. It usually creates more consequences. I think most people who advocate for the government to solve some issue are very well-meaning, and I think that they think that the government can achieve that, but the nature of bureaucracy and government is usually, it ends in failure. But as to the question of do I think the Libertarian well, I, Party... I want to push back slightly. Okay. You, you say ends in failure. 
I don't I don't believe it always ends in failure. I think there can be a we we focus on some of the failed times. They're easy to find, but I think mm-hmm. personally, overall, I think that government helps us and we have things that do work. They can be uh, there tends to be a lot of junk in the middle and struggles that and maybe that's could that be part of what you mean? Like it seems like a lot of times when government gets involved, hey, we could have done this a lot more easily. Um but then it's hard to 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 make points or or to try to get there. Yeah, I think the the higher up you try to solve problems, the the more difficult it gets. I mean, I'm a fan of local government because it it is easier to get things done and you know the people that are actually uh, operating in your local community. But when you look at trying to let's say the Department of Education trying to solve problems in education, you haven't seen really any results from having such a massive bureaucracy as the the Department of Education over the last, you know, since Carter, Nixon and Carter put it into place. So that's just one example. Um, but so I think you, you like, can be... you like government more on a local level because people can, the community standards and everything that's going on in the community, people can relate more and it's more similar. I mean, Try to get I mean, a, you can make to, the argument that's very impactful to your community. I mean, if you complain to your mayor about potholes and that's fixed within a month, what other, uh, you know, type of government could you be involved in that would that would see results like that? I think it's a sexier thing to yell about the high people that are up, the attorney generals, the vice presidents, the presidents. But it's interesting. And I, Chris, I'm going to get your thoughts as to why this is. Why don't people why aren't people as enthusiastic about their local elections and local governments, because who's the sheriff, who's the judge, uh, you know, who's the county commissioner, all these things could directly affect your business, could directly affect your neighborhood and directly affect uh, the economics, uh, you know, your, your day-to-day economics. So I just, it's interesting that like, I don't think anybody really knows their local uh, officials. Yeah, I don't think that it's uh, a boring subject. I mean, having been around local politics for a lot of my career, it's a lot of fun, and you make a lot of great friends. I think the nature of um, the media has has played a part, and as small, like I, I live in Indianapolis, and the Indy Star is owned by Gannett, and that's about to be gobbled up by somebody else again. And so 50... A hundred years ago, you had three newspapers, all locally owned. You know, like the Star was owned by the Pulliam family. They were well, they were really engaged in the community. They were willing to take. They had the money to take the loss on producing news. Mm. Lo- local news is incredibly expensive to produce. And as these, I did cor- not know that. Yeah, as corporations gobble up and they they cut budgets because they're trying to appease shareholders. That's why a lot of your local news is now police reports or press releases or tweets. It's stuff that is very easy to glean because they don't have the manpower anymore to really report local news. And the consumer, by and large, us, we tend to be more attracted to uh, national news and the federal government because it's more entertaining. It's it, Politics is really becoming an entertainment sport, and it's really hard to... 
uh, Donald Trump is eminently entertaining, and you don't have very many mayors or city councilors like Donald Trump. So it's harder to get the consumers to care about that kind of stuff. <laughs> Could you imagine if we did? It would be like Royal Rumble all the time. There's some cra- like Indiana has a guy named Bruce Borders who's an Elvis impersonator uh, in, in the legislature. Like local politics has crazy characters too. It's and it's not hard to do. It's just hard to get. You know, people are so busy with so much stuff, and it's hard for them to get out to uh, once a month on a Monday evening to a city council meeting and they don't quite get it and there's no place to really pick it apart and argue and there's not a lot of argument in local politics and this is the dirty little secret of politics it's not as divisive as the media makes it out to be you know at the local and even up to congress there's a lot of stuff that just is agreed upon and and passed and and so i think the homogenization of our culture as we as we start to lose like look at dialect for instance my grandma my great grandmother from southern Indiana, had a very distinct way of speaking that was only from that region of the country, of the world. And that, do- that accent doesn't exist anymore. As, as we all start to talk like each other, that's just one example of cultural homogenization where the, the, the centralization of news and conversation and media and entertainment at the corporate level in these you know, mega corporations... And uh, that that robs local affiliates and local newspapers of their their distinct character. And so you open up the Indy Star and you basically see the USA Today product with a couple sports stories. And so people just aren't aren't getting that news. And it's partly because they're not seeking it out and they don't want to pay for it. Well, let me even throw this out there, too, Al, to your question um, as part of it. When is the most watched news on? They put the national news on when most people will be watching it, I think. And it's just like any primetime television. That's the stuff that that gets everybody, um, gets all the eyeballs and all the, the viewers and the listeners and all that kind of stuff. They're on at the right times, I think, too. And that grows it even more. So, uh, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. The it's all it I, again. It all comes down to marketing. It's and they they market. Uh, you know, it's almost like the embrace debate thing that's gone on in sports in the last few years. Sports has just taken what politics has been doing for quite a while and brought it to the sports world. And now it's normal in the sports world. It used to be that Stephen A. Smith. And um, when they used to do, when they were doing the show on ESPN, uh, first take, uh, Skip Bayless, that were they were the only real arguing show guy, two guys going against each other, two people going against each other. Now it's commonplace in sports, but it's not any different than what you see on all the news shows. All the news shows, if it's on Fox News, they take a better looking Republican and an uglier looking. Uh, a lesser attractive Democrat. And then the opposite they do on like MSNBC, they'll take somebody who's better looking to make the point that they like more. And then the opposing viewpoint will be the person that looks more like an alien. Me? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the margins and the margins in news, have you guys seen network? It's on Netflix right now. The I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. What else? Somebody told me it's a good show. It, it, so Network is a movie from like the 70s or early 80s about uh, the entertainment 
monetization of news and and it's got this anchor man at this local at this national news it's like a like a Walter Cronkite guy and the the corporation starts to really return value to its shareholders and so they start to move the news programming to more entertainment and bringing on psychics and it's got like this carny host i mean and it, if you watch that it's really kind of a documentary on what happened in the news business as you know, the CBS and ABC and NBC were willing to take a bath on the news with with all these employees and lose millions of dollars a year. But somewhere along the line over the last, you know, 20 years, that's just become much harder to do. And so you're you're going to basically as long as news is attached to a shareholder model, it's always going to gravitate towards that PTI-style debate, that crossfire-style debate. And that is really a large reason why politics is just so miserable for people to watch now. Because people like on immigration, for instance, are arguing two different things that are completely like misinformed, but it's very entertaining to them. And it, and it just becomes sort of like a, a fantasy football game to go on your Facebook and yell at a at a libtard or some snowflake conservative like it just it just is really kind of uh a problem and i want to get your opinion because it you know when people you know it's it's going to sound like i'm going to defend the news and i am i am for a second because uh the news uh, as far as we know is not a state-run organization they are a for-profit business model uh last i checked and I, I think that it's so strange w- that we treat them any uh, any different than like I always the example I always bring up is MTV. MTV is a for profit business model. They their job is to put things on that people watch. Everybody, special people, my generation, Frank generation. Oh my God, MTV! They don't show any videos. I remember in the eighties they used to show Madonna and Prince. They don't show any videos. Why is that? And it's because when they put videos on, people don't watch. They don't watch. But when you put on Teen Mom and somebody is throwing a glass of champagne to somebody uh, on a rooftop bar, people watch. Yeah. So they kept putting on videos. No one watched. They kept putting on Teen Mom 2. Everyone watched. So eventually, MTV is really Teen Mom and a couple of the things. Like, I haven't watched MTV in years, so I could be talking out of my ass. But I'm assuming it's mostly series programming instead of four and eight hour uh, music video blocks. Uh, mu- music videos have not really gone to YouTube. So, Al, so, you're defending more of the the entertainment side of news. I, I, no, I'm defending the fact that the news is putting on what people watch. Right, yeah. right. And they and so the reason. And here's and I, and I'm like this as quickly as possible. The reason I think that that PTI style works is because we are in a 180, 240 character era. And I think that's how people digest information. And rather than, let's say Frank was a news anchor and he had a teleprompter and he read factual information for an eight hour, excuse me, an eight minute um, news block. No one would watch that. But if Frank goes, kids in cages is terrible and I'll tell you why. Yeah. Right there. That little information is how people take in information. I, I, I so, get that. But at the same time, if you're you know, bringing that sensationalism up a little bit, and you're also arguing that you're the fourth estate, um, you know, that you're the fourth branch of government unofficially. That's a, that's kind of butting against each other a little bit. Do you agree or disagree? I agree, but their job is to lock in viewers and have a cult-like viewership. And that is what Fox News has. Well, yeah. That is what CNN has. There are people that would, would not watch Fox News if somebody had a gun to their head and vice versa. And so these people have developed... 
let me tell you what the what the Republicans did when we come back. It's more. It's not. That's not a news tease. That's a. I gotta tell you some shit. Let me grab my beer. CNN, that's what that is. Well, CNN's it gets a lot of hate for good reason. And you look at CNN headline. In news, your opinion, it's, well, it's, no, it's for a good reason. They. <laughs> so you look at CNN headline news, and it's exactly what you just said. It used to be straight news. Tune in every fifteen minutes. The same stories over and over, almost like Sports Center from ten years ago. And they hired Jeffrey Zucker, the guy who was in charge of Thursday Night Comedy and Seinfeld and Friends and all that at NBC. And, and, and now you look at, at CNN Headline News. I don't even think it's called that anymore. And it's, and it's uh, what, what was that blonde lady that always talked about crime that's just egregious? Uh, it, it's like it's like Grace, the true Grace, crime channel. Grace, what's her name? Grace. You throw in a yeah, lot of opinion. HLN, HLN broke off and became... Right. A channel for because I and I've heard this with MSNBC. Everybody thinks Rachel Maddow is a flagship show of that network. It's lockup. Lockup <laughs> is what makes all the money. People watch those those script those script uh, crime shows. So they did HLN. They they used to put that stuff on in the afternoon. They realized there are people that would want to watch those shows all the time. So they did give them their own network, and that's a fluff network that has nothing to do with news. CNN. I mean, it, you would go to CNN if there was a hurricane, mm. would you not? You wouldn't go to HLN. Right. But is there even a place to go anymore to get straight news, as, even on television? Is there a place to get just the facts, supposedly? Overseas. Overseas news. Whose? Overseas. I would go to the BBC to get something. If I really wanted to find out, I would I would read the BBC. You're going to go to a British? <laughs> I'd, I'd argue that that straight news never existed, and that it was really the the governing elite was what programmed Walter Cronkite in that era. And I, I think there's a there's a there's yeah. some truth to that as well from everything yeah. I've learned in J I, school. I think we're in a healthy place, believe it or not, because with the Internet, you have the ability, you know, news news in the 1800s. You, you, we have the Corden Democrat and the the Rushville Republican here in Indiana, and it's because you had three or four local newspapers of competing opinions, and you had to read those four or five sources to really get a, a good idea of what's going on in the world. And I think that holds true, and it's easier than ever to fire up five websites, read some commentary, look at you know read the New York Times, but then read you know Vox and National Review and Reason, and then you're good. Like I think. It's not that hard to really get information. You just have to read more than one source, and sometimes well, people I, balk I mean, let me, at that. Let me push back on that for one second, Chris, because I don't, I don't want to forget what you're saying, because I, I appreciate what you're saying. And, and to have that well-rounded readership, like you were talking about, Vox, you know, MSNBC, Fox, reading everything and then forming your own opinion. Frank, how do you feel about this? I feel like a lot of people, like let's say you're a person that leans uh Republican. Let's just use that example. And so you're going to read, you're going to go to Fox first. You're probably going to go to the Wall Street Journal second. And you may have a couple other sites that you go to that, but they're probably going to be Republican sites. And that would go the confirmation same for bias. That's totally confirmation right. bias. I, I, just, I mean, what you're saying, Chris, in an ideal world is like w the list you gave when I rewrite, when, when I redo this, uh, when I re listen to this podcast. I will go back and make sure that I'm reading all those before I have an opinion because I completely agree with you. But do you think the majority of people that have picked a side, which most people have, whether it's independent, uh, you know, Republican or Democrat or other, um, do you think that most people still get that wide readership or do you think they just kind of double down on what they already 
uh, belief. I think most people don't pay attention. They may they may just sort of glean and think about this when you guys are really busy. You kind of glean whatever you see on Twitter. You glean one Facebook. You might hear it on the news in the car. I think that's how most people consume news. So most people are not paying attention. And that's because they're busy with their lives and there's a lot going on and their lives are stressful. Their economic situation is stressful. And the last thing they want to deal with is uh, arguing over gun control or immigration or whatever highly passionate topic there there is. So I think most people... I think I think there's a certain segment, probably twenty percent on all these ideologies, that just they will not read anything other than the Drudge Report, or they will not read anything other than Raw Story and Think Progress. You know, I think I think we tend to look at that as the extremes because those are the most vocal people. But in reality, most people just kind of glean their information, and that's really a dangerous way to do it. I think that's a dangerous way to be an informed voter is to just kind of let yourself glean off of what you see around you in the stew. I think it's really important that people become active readers of three or four different multivariate sites. Don't watch any TV news, uh, I, I, any cable news specifically. You're having your intelligence insulted, and it's all propaganda, uh, in my opinion, Frank. Uh, and, uh, you know, I... That sounds like a spinoff podcast to this one, in my opinion. Frank. In my opinion, in my <laughs> frank opinion, um, but I, I think reading is key. I mean, the the I'm I'm doing uh, I'm producing a podcast here in town with some of the most successful people in town, and like, how did Indianapolis grow into a city from Indiana place to a place that hosts the Super Bowl and and is a world class city? And we're talking to the people, the leaders that made that happen. And the thing that I have noticed about every single one of them is they are deep readers. They read probably an hour a day, you know, at least 30 minutes. And it's, it's not just newspapers and magazines. It's books. It's history. It's, they're, they're trying to improve themselves. And I think that is the thing that I, I, I've been impressed. If you meet successful people, they're usually putting a lot in their heads. You guys, I learned this from Tim Wilson, a comedian from Bob and Tom. And, and, and after, peace. yeah, and you probably both know him. And after he passed away, I just heard how. People talked about him like he was, I mean, just he was a super intelligent guy. His com his comedy was super deep. So I started asking, like, how did Tim get that way? And they said there wasn't a moment where he wasn't putting something in his head. And that increased his output. And I think that's just the key is, is you have to take the initiative. If you want to be a good citizen, if you want to change the world, then you have to read and understand the world that's going on. And it can be difficult. But once you figure out how to do that after a month... It becomes rote and easy, and it becomes a habit just to pick up three or four news sources and, and a, a library card. Al, can, yeah, I, just, can I, I back up for I, a second? Because I, I, I want to let you guys go on with that for a little bit. In terms of the BBC, um, you're feeling... Is this an off-air discussion? For no. <laughs> they're still... <laughs> they're still looking for eyeballs right they're still looking for people to watch them and be interesting so they're going to steer stuff in some way they might be more objective and coming from outside looking in than us but th than what we have produced here but they also have their own I, I think all they and they have to you can't get rid of it i'm not trying to paint anybody into a box or into a corner here everybody has an objective it's and you, it's not always just telling the truth. It's telling stories as well. What do journalists say? I'm going to, I want to craft the best story 
that I can, not tell the most interesting facts that I can, because people, they've, they believe the journalists themselves. I've been in the sports world for so much time that I found that sports producers are bored with sports. <laughs> so they do stories about people in sports. It's that makes sense. And the BBC is, let's say, uh, watch e old school ESPN, where it was just highlights, to now where it's tugging at your heartstrings, to uh, telling stories about cancer survivors, and all this stuff is great. I, you know, it is interesting, and you do find out a lot of people. And this is what I think the BBC is doing in a lot of ways as well. They're just crafting longer, better stories. <laughs> Than they are, and it's not the he said, she said, she said, he said, you know, he, he, whatever, back and forth kind of thing. They tell it in a longer arc, and they they're allowed to do that there more. Well, it's be, I, I, and I can't say it's because, but the reason I think that is is because people that are going to the BBC or to Fox or to CNN probably are not hearing the news for the first time. How often do you go on to? CNN or ESPN or anything, and you don't already know, you get updates. The Astros beat, you know, the Reds eight to two. You already know that when you're going on, if you're going to watch the show, if you're going to sit down and watch an actual sports center, you already know the scores. You've probably already seen the highlights. Right. So, you know, Robinson Cano, it's a, it's a grand walk-off grand slam. You already saw that on your phone. So their only way, they can't have you come to them and you just have the same thing that they, you've already seen an hour before they have to have something different. So they will have a longer story. They will have something that's not available on Twitter or on the website to keep you there longer, to keep eyeballs on them longer. And yes, I do agree that anytime you have people, you are going to have people that have an, object an objective. But I would say that the BBC has at least less of a dog in the fight well, than, in, than Fox or MSNBC would. Al, do you think that's maybe because there are so many parties over there that it's not just this side versus that side? That it's many sides. Was it six parties there? Um, yeah, something like that. So there are all these parties. So it's more segmented. So you're not just picking. It's not, it's shades of gray as opposed to black and white. And when you have yeah. that, you can't just have this fight back and forth one on one. You have to hit different things, and thus they get a wider array. The marketing there isn't one side versus the other. I think we've actually, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, this might be a, a big piece of it. They have to, they don't have that our team versus your team single mentality. There's If it's one versus five others or whatever, that's a big difference than one versus the other. Now you're just angry at each other and going back and forth and it escalates. When it's one versus the other five, well, well no, because this, this is because that. that then it's, it can actually spur more of a dialogue because it's not just A versus B. The the government owns the BBC, and so that plays a role, much like the much like NPR here. The reason the content is so starkly different, in my opinion, Frank, is that they don't have as much of a mandate to to generate ad revenue because their their funding comes from the government or from donors and from a nonprofit. And so, I think I think you're right. I think that it does lend itself because there are so many different voices and their media ecosystem allows that because they're less engaged in trying to like here it, it the reason we do st storytelling is that's the best way for the human brain to learn and we love stories it's it's less engaging if we hear facts or statistics 
which would probably be more helpful uh, than stories, but stories really engage us quicker. And so, you know, I, I and that's why I think storytelling at NPR, for instance, and these podcasts that they do, th- that really has, because they have a different funding model, they have more time and space to expand on their on how they do broadcasting and can fail at telling a bad story and then eventually 20 years later they're just masters at it and so so i do how do you feel in your you know former more um libertarian uh way of thinking or you're still kind of way of thinking libertarian thinking but not as uh affiliated with it Uh that the government is involved in that because to me it seems like that's really great and at the same time because it it's trying to be diverse and different and get lots of at the same time it's like oh that's kind of scary so it's it hits me in both ways and maybe that's a good thing as long as you know where the content is coming from i think i always find that that helps um because like if you watch fox news you know what their perspective is coming from Mm -hmm. if you watch msnbc you know where their perspective is coming from as long as you know where that's coming from and you can critically think through it, that helps you and you can digest and get more uh, that's closer to the fact or what we believe to be fact. But what is, in your mind, where do you think that that BBC, that model, uh, where that comes from or how that where do you think that is? Does that scare you? Uh, uh, yeah. No, I think that anytime the go- the difference between the government and the private sector and the government and you and I, is that the government can force you to do things. It's like the lady that didn't sign the traffic ticket for her taillight. So, so can a woman with great breasts. <laughs> that's right. But she can persuade you. She can't coerce you. And that's the difference. NPR, the great-breasted woman of news. <laughs> it's, it's, it's choice. And so if you disagree that you, your taillight, you shouldn't get a ticket for your taillight, the state will pull you out of your car and put your face in the dirt. They, they have the guns and you don't. And so that's the, the scary part about allowing the government to fund news is that if you look at the history of the BBC, they really have uh, they have been pro-government. And that's not how you want your government to be. The best funding model for news, in my opinion, is through a foundation or through a nonprofit. I, I don't think that the federal government should fund PBS and NPR. I think there are a lot of people who consume their content that will open up their money, as they already do as underwriters, to make up the difference. But it shouldn't be publicly funded. It shouldn't be, if I don't listen to NPR, I shouldn't have to pay for it. It's the user should have to pay for it. And, and to, to tease this out a little bit, the Weekly Standard just went out of business. It's a conservative magazine. The National Review is still in business and thriving. And the difference between the two, why one is out of business and the other is not, is that National Review has a foundation, a nonprofit that really makes up the, the losses because the, the National Review readers donate and get a tax write-off. And Weekly Standard was owned by a, a for-profit corporation. Originally, it was started by Rupert Murdoch of Fox News fame. And they were a for-profit business, and when they weren't making their bottom line, they, went, they, they got cut. So I think the future of news is really user-supported, backed by a nonprofit. And so that it gives space to people. So you can really – you have an independence. ProPublica, Intercept, uh, these are investigative journalism sites that are anti-state oh. in some cases. Chris, and, 
Chris, let me let me ask you this really quickly, bro. Yes, sir. Um, okay, and I understand. And, and correct me if I'm mis misquoting you. Uh, you think the best model would be uh, one that uh, thrives financially from uh, user donated? Because, like you said, you didn't. If you don't listen to NPR, you don't want to pay for it. If you are a, a company, let's say this is a Chris Spangled Network, mm -hmm. and you have ten donors that keep you afloat. Don't you have an obligation, whether you say it or not, to make sure that you're generating content that that those ten important donors want to hear to continue to stay in business? So then, now are you now beholden to your to your subscribers? Because if three of your subscribers go, uh, hey, this this is taking a very liberal or very uh, right wing turn, I'm not going to donate unless you fire Al Jackson, Frank Hellandu, or Chris Spangle. Wouldn't you be beholden to do that because you know that a loss of that revenue could could tank the entire thing? And it might not even just be an obligation to those people. It might be uh, a worry that you're going to go under without them. Well, sure. I mean, I, I am fully funded by Patreon, and my my listeners support what I do. And so there is always that thing where it holds you accountable, and you do always think. But at the end of the day, like I have to be true to what I think. And that's not really hmm. different, Al, than WTOP, which is fully funded by advertising from defense contractors. Washington, D.C. media is fully funded by defense contractors. Like, you look at any print magazine in D.C., the newspaper, listen to the radio stations, it's Boeing, Northrop Grumman. All of these defense contractors make up the biggest chunk of advertising in D.C. And so... Is it surprising that we have a pro-intervention press? Like, is it surprising that a lot of the hiring decisions on the reporter level, on the editorial level, are people that just tend to favor, uh, they're not Tulsi Gabbard, then they're more like Joe Biden, where, you know, let's just keep the drone program going as opposed to Tulsi Gabbard. So, like, that exists in the court, like, in, B in the BBC realm where the government funds it, they don't want to tick off their bureaucratic overlords. So anytime you're getting a paycheck from anybody, there's always going to be some thought of, should I say this? If you're in the media or if you're a comedian or if you're on a, on a show like yours or, you know, working for a show like I do, like there's always in the back of your mind going to be like, what are the consequences of me saying this? And I think so that's what totally if, but what appropriate. What if you say something on your podcast that angers half the people that are your funders Aren't you going to scramble to try and uh, fix yeah, that in some way? If they, if they all say, take back what you said or I'm Or out. no. A lot of my people fund me because I say what they want to hear, like not what they want to hear, but what needs to be said. So okay. I, 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 have, I have lost a couple people over things that I have said, but I've never, I, I don't know that you necessarily will lose a huge base. Now, if I started my show and said, you know what, I am for invading Iran and pro Green New Deal, like I'm sure a lot of my listeners would go, uh, ex you know, I'm leaving, but I would be saying something that isn't true that I don't believe. Over the course of eight years, these people have built a connection. And this is what every media producer does. And it kind of goes back to that storytelling in sports. And your job as a media producer is to build a relationship with an audience, and to build a habitual usage of your content. You want people to like your content so much that they look forward to your new podcast or look forward to tuning into your radio show or look forward to getting the magazine in the newspaper, in the mail. And or so, 
your porn and would you run a pawn shop and the it, girls don't have enough money? Right. But Chris, you're at a certain point at a certain size, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is when people get to be these giant, the bigger they get, the more they say, oh, this I have this much to lose now. And you start to, I've seen it with my own, in my own self in comedy where I've gone and I do a lot of corporate stuff. So I'm like, I want to change a lot of what I do, but you know what? I'm going to go back to the well because that's where the biggest money is. And as much as I want to change artistically, and you may be different than me, I'm just telling you where I'm coming from. Sure. I want to change artistically and do this other stuff and get edgier and maybe take some chances where I could get in some trouble one way or another. But I have clauses in some of these contracts where people say, well, if you get in big trouble, we have the right to get out of the contract. I see that stuff. I see that. I saw that stuff when I was on sports networks too. Like, I'm like, I want to evolve and get better and be more of an artist. But at the same time, I don't want to be called into the office by the principal and get in a lot of trouble when you're doing what you're doing. And I think it's great when you're doing what you're doing, uh, going out there and, and speaking what you truly believe and going for that. And if you don't like it, get off the, get off the wagon kind of a deal. I think that's great. But at a certain point, when you start to realize, wow, I have a lot to lose. It's like an athlete in, uh, in the, let's say, the NBA. Let's take Zion Williamson, who's the super basketball player uh, that could be a generational talent coming out of uh, Duke. And now in the NBA, every time he gets close to tweaking something before he's actually playing an NBA game, they pull him out of the game. He's out for a couple of weeks. He's out for a couple months. They're like, we have to take care of this guy. Because he's the eventual franchise. Well, you're you're now losing everything you had in the meantime, that all the time with him to have him do more, and that happens with money all the time. These guys, like what they're doing and what Zion is doing, and I think rightfully so, is taking care of himself. He's taking care of himself and saying like, "Hey, this game means nothing. I don't want to get hurt in this game." When it comes to the real game, if we're in the middle of a game that matters. That's one thing. But if we're up 40, I should be out because this doesn't matter at all. And we're now talking hundreds of millions of dollars when sure. it didn't mean hundreds of millions of dollars. The athletes are like, I'm just going to play. I play because I love the game. Well, now there's a whole other thing. And that's why the money got so big. One of the arguments, I think, is, hey, we only have this amount of time to win because people are out of the sport this quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of them are out that quickly because of injury. Well, now they're getting rid of the injury as well. So or trying to. This is never going to be out. But like um, with Kawhi Leonard, he wants to sit who's he won the, the MVP of um, the NBA finals and is a low key player for people who don't know, but a great player. But he likes to sit. He wants to sit a certain amount of the season to preserve himself. LeBron James doesn't play defense anymore to preserve himself. He'll take the flack from it because he's like, I can now play five extra years more than people used to. And but they're not playing as long during the season. So now they're talking about shortening the NBA season so the players play less so their bodies can uh, recuperate more than the old players used to who used to make a lot less money. Yeah. Does that make a lot? Does yeah. That make to, sense? to give you a media example, I think Howard Stern's a great example of this. When he was young and hungry, he would do anything to get attention, including some very uh, some things that he deeply regrets now. And he has a totally different show now that he is considered a cultural icon 
that in a different environment protects that image. He doesn't have porn stars come in and ride the Sibian like he did 10 years ago. He has, you know, Jennifer Garner in to ask her about her divorce. I mean, it's, it, it, you, and in a you way, do. we all become a little bit more like the corporations. <laughs> right. I mean, the bigger you get, the closer you get to that in the world. And then you have people working under you. And what happens is, and I've seen this with myself, you have more and more people uh, that you delegate uh, responsibilities to. And it might all come back to you, but there are more and more people doing things in that middle ground and less and less of you, well, although it's your yeah, main point. People people are employed because of your your efforts. I'm on the ascendancy, so I can still misbehave. Right. Uh, no, I, 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 which is great. I, which is, I love to hear it. Yeah, I, let me, let me, I, I, I know what it's like to be there. Yeah, so I, I look at it this way. I'm not afraid of my audience. They don't concern me because those are people who – have decided to fund my operation after months or years of listening to me, and they feel a connection to it. They get what I do. They understand what I do. I am more afraid of the mob, the people who don't understand what I do and will take a certain thing out of context because they don't get my personality or my broadcast style, or maybe they even have an axe to grind. And like Media Matters does this to conservative talk figures, they will go and find something that was said maybe five years ago on a private podcast and then p push this out to local blog mills, which then ends up on CNN, and then sponsors drop Pew PewDiePie. Or, like, I I'm more afraid of the people who have, uh, have used the mob to silence people. I don't think I'm at that point, but I definitely... Oh, I definitely let, me let me ask you this. Okay. Do you think you're... Your thinking would ever change at all? Um, in in what way? Like, what would be the cause of my thinking changing? Well, in terms of, do you think you would worry less about people leaving you? I mean, because you did say something that might uh, be controversial to them, and they might say, "That's it. I've had enough." Chris Spangle. Yeah. No. The thing that happens most often with an audience that is, you know, supporting you is that they just kind of outgrow your show, or they move on, or they there's like a life cycle to it, and eventually they just kind of go, eh, "I'm not listening anymore. I'm on to something else." And that that concerns me more is you know recruiting new people when it comes to the funding part. When it comes to saying outrageous things or betraying kind of your audience, you know, the people who choose to give money for very little in return other than just content that they enjoy listening, you know, those people have been with you for a long time and they have a relationship with you. And it's, and it's much easier to get away with saying something that is uh, disagreeable on the listener end if there's a relationship there. You know, you can... You have that ability. I, I'm much more concerned in our environment about people who don't listen but will take something out of context uh, or people who have an axe to grind or if really what it comes down to, if you're effective in political speech, then there is some group that will hunt down whatever piece of content that you've put out there. I mean, listen, I've... I mean, I've done probably five to ten hours a week for a decade now, and that's a tremendous amount of material for somebody to to go back and comb through. And that's like on the left, like that's what Media Matters does. They just go and they they try to take things out of context and they push it out in press releases and liberal blog mills kind of pick that up. And then eventually, it's like what, Tucker Carlson's a white supremacist because he said these things. That's you know, so. 
I think all angles do that too, though. They, I see uh, yeah. the right. The right does that as well. I don't want people just to think it's all. Oh, no, I'm, it, I'm using that. They're angle. the ones who really like got that ball rolling, and then the right has 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 started their own version of that. And as libertarians, like, listen, I mean, the reality is that in this environment, the the predominant media culture leans left. And maybe some people would would argue with that, but I think if you look at Hollywood, if you look at the people like uh, like an Anderson Cooper, CNN, or Don Lemon, like the the most of the mainstream media tends to lean left. Uh, and as a as a, I try to be sensitive to other people because I just think it's polite, and I try to be nice to people, and I try to understand that not everybody has the same background as me, and I, I don't think a lot of people get that in the media and so i have to i have to always keep in mind like if i do i I don't self-censor but i am cognizant of the fact that as a white male who's a libertarian who's straight who lives a christian conservative lifestyle uh I, i can easily be lumped into a crowd that is you know, more grotesque, you know, the, the white supremacist or the alt-right crowd. Like, it's very easy for a mob to come after you and just lump you in with a bunch of people. And, and what I tend to do is talk to people from a variety of, of spectrums. I mean, I'm, I'm actively looking for people who were, uh, were in white supremacist situations. I want them to come on and explain, like, how, how did you get into this and how did you get out of it? You know, it's it's I just had somebody on my show who was an opioid addict. It doesn't mean that I do opioids because I talk to that person. But it's very right. easy you to give, smear you people. You let people have their voice. Right. And when they have their voice and you you can do it in a respectful disagreeing way too or just a just in listening and that doesn't mean you're agreeing. That just means you're listening and letting them have their say and not trying to be rude and have a fight because that's not going to get you anywhere anyway. Right, but the problem is that there are always people on all sides who are on your opposing side who want to paint you a certain way to... Right. It's it's happening to a guy named Dave Rubin right now who couldn't be... He used to be on Young Turks and a Democrat, and now he's uh, libertarian-leaning. He calls himself a classical liberal, and he just does an interview show. He's very milk toast. He's very inoffensive, but he has a lot of guests on who are on the right or libertarians or all right. He tries to have conversations with people. And the Young Turks crowd, kind of the left podcast sphere, is accusing him of just laundering white supremacists. And it's like the guy isn't doing that. He's trying to have conversations and connect with people. It's You sort of see that with Joe Rogan, too. And so there, there's just. Do always, they come after Joe Rogan? They're, they're, they're trying hard. Yeah, they're trying because he talks See, to people. I think he's one of the most fair uh, interviewers from, and I haven't, I haven't heard a ton. I don't. I guess I don't listen to a lot of a ton of comedians because I don't want to be influenced. Even though his right. stuff is less. Uh, I don't want to say not comedic because he's. I think he's brilliant, and when he wants to turn on the funny, he does. But he does a great job of just being an interested person, asking uh, great questions and. And stuff for his audience and deep diving into everything. But to come after Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan is, uh, I mean, he's, I'm not, I, I don't want to speak for him because I don't even know him, but I think he's a fair thinking person who's just giving opinions and, and uh, he, asking he questions. Re- yeah, and try- he really doesn't, if I may interrupt you on your show, he doesn't really even give a lot of opinions. He just lets people talk for three hours. Yeah. And that's sort of the dangerous Without part. putting up a huge fight. He might ask yeah. a question or two or even, I've heard him ask pretty difficult questions. But he lets people talk, and I think that's, uh, 
it's weird because that's how sometimes that's how you grow to is the controversy. Like you might be our controversy, Chris. Right. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> just, but uh, no, I, I actually think uh, one of the things about you that I think there are some things we overlap overlap on. I think there are some things we're further apart. We lost Al here, but uh, I think there are some things you probably overlap with Al. I don't want to speak for him, but we'll we'll we talk to you uh, every once in a while, anyways, and we can get back on that. But there's one thing that I always think you do is you you don't come back with fighting words. You come back and say, "Well, here's where I'm coming from. This is why I think differently." And if we agree to disagree. That's great. That's fine. And because we can do it because we're human beings living in a society together and it just works out better that way. So everybody can live together. And yeah. I, I think you're a really good at thinking through a lot of this stuff before you even talk. You, you, um, unless you're just giving your flat out opinion that you now state for me on the show every once in a while. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think you, you do a nice job of articulating and then staying where you come from and then realizing there is another side to something and Hey, you might think that way, but this is just where I'm coming from. And I believe in it. Yeah. I've had uh, a lot of evolutions in my thinking about a lot of things. I mean, you know, my stance on war, for instance, I was, college Republicans president in 2004 when George Bush was president. I mean, I couldn't have been more pro-Iraq invasion, and and I was just so wrong about that. I mean, I was obviously like <laughs> 20, 21, but, you know, and as I kind of have looked at that and thought about why did I, why did I kind of fall for it? What, what were the reasons that I fell for some of those talking points and was so easily persuaded? I mean, I have had my own thinking evolve on a lot of different things, and there are some things like like uh, gun control, for instance, where I've completely switched my position, or war, I've completely switched my position. Um, uh, law enforcement, I mean, I have a much more skeptical view of law enforcement, and I think that's yeah. one place that Al and I agree on, much different than I might have in the past. But there are some things where I've always kind of been pro-life, but I'm more pro-life now because I've kind of research some of that stuff and i just uh, i try to do my homework and kind of the, the output of my podcast is an output of that research of that thinking about these big issues and and what i read and what i learn and trying to say here's how i'm thinking about it. like i'm just trying to persuade people i just don't i think if you're a libertarian and your goal is to build a world where you're pers where it's built on persuasion and voluntary association it's very hard and unconvincing to argue in a way that's coercive and bullying and I I just I'm not an aggressive person. I you know Frank on in my first grade baseball team they put me in the back up to the back right fielder, and <laughs> I like I wasn't even allowed to play. My mom's like I'm coming to the all these stupid games and you're not having him play. Why aren't you letting him play? He goes, we're afraid he's going to get hurt if we actually let him play. So he just doesn't have that killer instinct. So <laughs> you I've just you're a Jedi in the outfield. I've just always been of a gentle nature, and uh, you know, I so uh, that's how I approach things. And I appreciate your compliment. It really does mean a lot coming from you and the nice things that Al has said. And and I'm sorry to hear that he's left us. <laughs> Wait, no, he's still alive. Don't, oh, don't oh. give people the wrong. Okay, good. So we, uh, as always, Chris, we have probably in the last minute or two opened up about six or seven new avenues to discuss that we will get to in the future. Uh, but since we've lost Al, uh, and uh, I don't know if people realize this, but we also talked with you last week and there's a very thoughtful uh, discussion on uh, 
guns and gun violence. Um, so if you want to take a listen to that, go back and listen to that last week as well. Chris Spangle, your podcast name is? We Are Libertarians. And people can get there? WeArLibertarians.com. And we are Alan Frank at alanfrank.com. You can reach us on the various forms of social media. And we will be back next week like we are every week with uh, our attempt to try and be serious. I think I actually wrapped up the show decently there. That was nice. Yeah, I tried.